Hi, I'm your host, James Barrow, a creative turned marketing director with over 20 years' experience in the advertising industry. Join me as I go behind the scenes with a range of innovative thinkers. Hear what inspires them, their processes, and the methods to their madness. Find insights that can help unlock your creative potential and apply them in your life, career, and business. Right here on The B-Side with James Barrow. On episode 27 of The B-Side, I speak to Joe Carter, co-founder of the Ironclad Pan Company and the only cast iron cookware made in New Zealand with a three-generation guarantee. Before dedicating 100% of his efforts to Ironclad, Joe worked in a variety of roles at some of the world's most creative publishers and advertising agencies like Contagious and Colenso BBDO. He chats about his time at Colenso BBDO New Zealand as Partnerships Director, when the agency won Creative Agency of the Decade and a huge number of awards for work like the mobile app Kupu for New Zealand telecommunications firm Spark, which helps people speak Te Rao Māori, the official language of the Indigenous people of New Zealand. We jam on how to build meaningful brands and his mission to demonstrate that companies like his own can be both sustainable and profitable at the same time. We discuss the ironclad pan marketing and growth strategy, the focus he has on understanding his customers and how he's balancing the short and long-term objectives of the company, which offers a 100-year guarantee on their pans. Joe is an incredibly focused and considered marketer dedicated to creating one of the most enduring, literally, responsible brands on the planet. He's a super smart, super nice guy and I really enjoyed the chat. I know you will too. Cheers. I'm here with Joe Carter. He is now the co-founder of Ironclad Pans. Is it Pans or Pan? You can go for a reason, James. Up to you. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Um, I'm in lockdown. So this is another one of the in-the-house sessions. Sydney, I think, like the rest of Australia, but for Tasmania, is back in lockdown. I'm not wearing my mask, which I feel really nervous about. But anyway, that's that's nonsense. Joe Carter, how are you, man? I'm good. I feel like it'd be pretty difficult to do a podcast in a mask, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm great. How are you? Well, this is what it would sound like. It's like a pop filter. No, that's pretty, yeah, it's not going to work, man. Hey, for all the listeners out there, why don't you just give us a bit of a background into who you are, what you do, and um, why you're awesome. Oh, thanks for inviting us on. <laughs> not so sure I'm awesome. That's the old creative self-doubt right there. Um, yeah, yeah. we got to get over that. Um, I guess I've been working in and around advertising and marketing for 12 years or so um, since I left university. Worked for a couple of interesting companies, worked on the agency side for a while, worked at Contagious, who kind of look at what makes the best work in the world um, and the latest tech and trends. So really getting an understanding of what good looks like and then decided to move to New Zealand and um, work for Colenso BBDO for the last three and a half years and just wanted to see if I could get my foot in the door at one of the best agencies on the planet and mm. um, fluked my way in. Uh, <laughs> Why do you feel like you fluked your way in? I mean, obviously, they their standards would be quite high. They're not just letting any ruffian through the doors, you know. <laughs> I pitched um, Scott Calder, the MD at the time. I just messaged him on LinkedIn and said, I'm coming to New Zealand for a lunch with you. Can you make it? Um, and after I'd landed in New Zealand, he messaged me back and said, Sure, we'll go for a lunch. What was it about the lunch? I mean, you guys just hit it off or did he get you to show some work? I think so. I mean, I'm one of those people that's ridiculously hard for HR people and recruitment to actually put into a role because I don't squarely fit into traditional advertising roles. So I think there was some confusion um, when we had the lunch. It was like, well, you're not a writer. You're not a suit. You're not a 
producer, you're kind of somewhere in between all of that. So yeah, just a really, really confusing, confusing lunch. I've confronted that myself in a certain degree. You know, I started out wanting to work in film and but love strategy and have gone to both film school and business school and didn't want to be a strategist, wanted to make ads and, and, and like actually in the production arm and creative arm of things and then felt a bit restricted there so i wanted to move in a strategy you know and you kind of try and have these conversations with people and they're like dude just can you just tell us what you do i think that's one of the kind of most exciting things about the industry that we work in and around is it doesn't have to be linear yeah you know, yeah. like my my parents have worked at a bank for 30 years my brother works in investment banking um like that mm. was what was set up for me having studied business studies and you know done economics as well just didn't yeah. sit well with me so i'm yeah. quite happy to just jump around and do lots of different things you know? different things yeah and i think that the industry values that doesn't it you know when we're in the role sometimes it can be a bit siloed you, you can sort of move and transition into roles and it's not going to burden anyone you're just going to do it you're going to go out there and do mm. it. i think for the most part these creative leaders or the leaders of these creative industries will go, yeah, man, go for it. You know? Now, Contagious, is that linked to Contagious, the Contagious Mag? I mean, they were founded in 2004 by Paul Kent Robertson, who was worldwide head of creative excellence at Leo Burnett. Um, and yeah, he started Contagious Magazine as just a way for time poor CMOs and other C-suite leaders to really understand what's happening in the marketing and advertising industry, why it's working and then looking at, you know, the latest technology, the latest trends and the latest kind of startups and really just understanding what's going on out there. That then evolved into an online platform for a whole bunch of different people to use. So I was, um, you know, I was part of the sales team there, but had more of a keen eye on the editorial than trying to sell anything. I was really trying to understand what is the insight strategy behind, you know, Epic Split by Volvo or, you know, how did they land on the idea? What was the objective of the brief? You know, all those all those kind of rigorous questions that the Contagious team would ask. So they just had a yeah, really, really good reputation, spent a couple of years there, and then, you know, without being promoted, there was little room for growth, which is when I decided to come to come to New Zealand. And and you got to do some amazing work at Cleanzo, uh, you know, besides being voted one of the best agencies in the world. Um, you guys picked up a ton of awards in that period as well. I won't rattle through all of them, but our listeners should Google Colenso BBDO NZ and see the hall of awards they've consistently won over the last mm. few years. I mean, do you want to talk about some of your favorite campaigns that you were associated with? I mean, it's pretty tough for me to talk about my involvement because I was the person that came in at the end and helped to maximize exposure for them and help them to win awards ultimately and to kind of add my... 10 cents to an existing thought or campaign. Um, I think across all of the awarded work, both, you know, at effectiveness shows and at creative shows, um, I think one of my favorites was Spark Kupu, which was a language learning app created for New Zealanders to learn te reo Māori. Not exactly what you'd expect from a telco in New Zealand, but I think it was an example of Spark bringing their purpose to life of helping New Zealanders win big in a digital world. It was tackling a real world problem, um, which was a certain number of Indigenous languages are being lost every single day. So how do we encourage people to keep learning them? And I think it won a whole bunch of, you know, can lines and DNAD pencil, you know, all of that kind of stuff as well. But I think it won the um, Supreme Language Award in New Zealand. And I think that was the one that counted most to 
the team we worked on it as well as the the client team it was that local recognition beyond just the the creative smorgasbord that we um that we live in you know Oh, absolutely. I think at the heart of it, it was um, based on a real need and a, and, and a respect for our Indigenous cultures. And Yeah, exactly. There were, there were so many partners involved um, with that particular project, um, from Māori cultural advisors to the team at Google and Rush and just a whole bunch of different people. Google helped give it scale in terms of how do we make this accessible for other um, countries with Indigenous languages and kind of a forgotten history and culture so um yeah they were an integral part of the team to to bring it to life that quickly leads to my next question so it seems like you've been involved pretty much on the cutting edge of uh, marketing branding facilitating and instigating innovative ways to communicate to people and build brands what led you to establish ironclad pans i mean there's a quite quite an unusual dichotomy there, you know, like for most people who've worked in the advertising industry, they go to, your mind goes to DG platforms or new media opportunities or some new app. You've decided to brand an ageless, a timeless piece of kit. I love what you say when you mention shop well by once. It's the antithesis, I guess, of what modern marketing would suggest. Yeah. So there was this thought going around Lenzo at the time of, um, you know, how do we create the world's most meaningful brands? And I really got behind that as a, as a sentiment, but thought kind of how to, how do I do it? And so working with Kate Slevin, we kind of looked in our cupboards, saw all of these Teflon lined pans and baking trays and all the things. And that's when it kind of hit Kate as to, well, you know, what's this meaningful thing that we're going to create? And you know, hand down for generations to come. You know, something that's good for good for people, but also good for the planet. And you know, all of these things kind of rolled into one, and it was a cast iron skillet. Um, so yeah, I mean, how you get there from advertising, um, it's a big leap. Um, but we wanted to. I mean, I wanted to apply everything that I'd learned over the last few years um, to my own business, and yeah, co-founded it with a couple of other people. And yeah, 18 months in, still here, full-time now, loving it. Because I saw an update on LinkedIn where you, you said you'd pulled your full-time employment back to three days to dedicate more time to Ironclad. I mean, I guess everyone was on reduced hours and stuff last year. I just decided to continue with that so that I could invest, you know, two days into Ironclad and take the learnings from that and apply them to clients at Colenso. And then vice versa, take the learnings from Colenso and apply them to my own business. And then, yeah, the business just kind of continued to to grow and become more demanding. And there were more kind of, you know, expansion plans and new products coming out and all the things that are associated with the business that was just taking up more than two days of my time. Um, so that's when, yeah, the second announcement came, which was I'm off <laughs> within, a, <laughs> within a week. And um, how did they take that? Cracking on with this. No, they, were really, they were really good about it, really excited. The writing um, was probably on the wall, right? I mean. Yeah, I think they could I think they could see it. I think people around me could see it. It was more for me taking a risk and just doing it. Um, and not questioning necessarily why I'm doing it, but really feeling my gut and and going with it. And yeah, I've had a mentor tell me several times that the biggest risk is often not taking it. And it's a sentiment that I've heard from so many different leaders around the world all the time. So I was like, stop overthinking it and just fucking do it, you know? And, um, and yeah, plunged into it. 
I guess it's a scary thought, you know, people, I've been there a few times as well, you know, you have an idea and it's never going to be perfect, right? The situation is never going to be, the stars will never align. I don't think they should either. Um, You know, if if we're constantly waiting for the perfect time or the perfect environment or the perfect culture or the perfect people to do it with, then we'll never actually get anything done. Being like comfortably uncomfortable with that, you know, like, and just, and just rolling with it is a, it's a great thing, but it's so hard to do. <laughs> yeah, and I might pick you up on that later um, and just ask you a few questions on like how you got it off the ground and what mm-hmm. your sort of business strategy is and all that. But we can come back to that later. I realise I haven't really asked you about your background. So, like, where are you from originally? Um, you maybe mentioned it somewhat slightly before, but uh, if you could just give us a little bit of an info into where you're yeah. from. I do sense a Kiwi accent. You've adopted it quite well because I know you're from the UK. <laughs> yeah. So I'm born and bred in Ipswich in England. I've now got a fiancé who's Kiwi, <laughs> hence the... Uh, I don't even know, much of an accent, I guess. And yeah, spent 18 years in the UK and and spent, you know, a few years at university in Hull in North England and spent one year of my four-year degree in Berlin, having studied German and business studies from Berlin back to London, spent heaps of time in London and then yeah. came to came to Auckland. But I've traveled to a whole bunch of different places and like languages are my thing outside of... Um, yeah. How many languages do you speak? I know know you you do speak German and you wanted to be a German translator, but how many others do you? speak German, French, Spanish, and Italian. All the Romance languages except for German. It's not exactly that. That's it. And then I end up with a Kiwi fiancé, which has been (laughs) phenomenal. She'll listen to this and I must say it's the best best move. And what's something people wouldn't know about you? I get ridiculously honest with this stuff because it's a problem that's in the advertising industry is I'm a recovering alcoholic, um, which... Yeah, no one would kind of guess looking at me from the outside. Mm. Just over eight years clean, which is awesome and grateful one day at a time. Um, But that definitely shapes a lot of my thinking, my current life experiences, like everything. So, yeah, that's one thing that most people wouldn't know about me. And and that's another thing I'd want to come back to you on. I will say, though, adrenaline-fueled activities. What are some of the adrenaline-fueled activities before we come back to the more sobering realities of abstinence? The adrenaline-fueled activities are just a substitute basically yeah, um, yeah. But, i yeah. thought they might be linked yeah. <laughs> um skydiving rock climbing uh, yeah. bungee jumping done it kind of multiple times all over the world I'm anything terrified. that's going to give me that hit oh terrified. skydiving's great terrified, it's, um, it's how i proposed to my fiance oh did was, you really um, <laughs> he was falling out of a plane with a will you marry me sign at the bottom well that's far better than mine i was in a very sedate hot air balloon maybe at the same altitude but definitely not falling <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, just on that, mate, I, I, I do appreciate you sharing that with me and the battles you face daily. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's a lot more people today that don't really see the stigma around alcohol and uh, mm. deciding to stop drinking for all sorts of different reasons mm. um, or at least, you know, cut down and try yeah. other alternatives. Um, for me, it was about kind of self-acceptance and and recognition that I had a problem. You know, no one else could tell me. That I had a problem. Yeah, I had yeah. to understand it understand myself. Understand it yourself, yeah. No, that sense of clarity and focus returns returns pretty quickly, um, as does complacency. Um, and so that's something to to kind of watch out for. But, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of the other side of my life is, you know, removing the stigma around addiction and all those kind of things and just 
being there as an ear for people that want to have a chat because it's it's actually all right to ask for help. I didn't realize that when I was 22. I was like, no, I'm going to I'm going to tackle this all on my own because that's, you know, my ego and arrogance getting in the way and it's kind of the same through work as well. I often have to keep my ego in check because I'll be like well, actually, no, I know better. I'm so, I can be narrow-minded, right? Thinking that I'm open-minded and curious. Um, but I have to go out and ask for help. Otherwise, I'm never going to never gonna learn through other people's experiences. I think my advice for, for younger people or anyone of any age in the industry has always been to get, you know, someone close to your field as a mentor, someone as far away from your field as possible as a mentor, and then a personal mentor as well. Um, and somehow Levi has been all three, um, which has been amazing. I'd have to say Levi Slavin, who's the chief creative officer at Colenso, kind of took a punt on me. Um, but if I've had this kind of education about what makes grid work um, at Contagious, he's really taught me how to actually get there. Um, and just, you know, as a personal mentor and a business mentor, he's been yeah. And what does that look phenomenal. like? And, and what's the cadence? Like how often do you reach out or does he reach out to you is it organic is it structured what's the sort of mentor mentee relationship like yeah so i mean with him he was my direct report at work so we'd meet you know sort of once a week once every couple of weeks and just shoot the shit about work but then there'd be a once a month kind of structured catch up where it was more about you know what do i what have i learned in the last month where do i want to head in the next month to six months and then what's the next three years look like um I don't deal very well with long-term structured planning as a human. Um, I love it when brands can do that. So yeah, it was often just learning from his experiences and learning from his kind of viewpoint on the world um, and trying to become less narrow-minded and thinking I know everything um, and just just listening to other people like, like him. Um, I think as well in terms of uh, mentors or influencers, um, fortunately I was, I was pretty grateful to run a podcast for a couple of years, um, with Beth O'Brien. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about that. Are you guys still doing that together or is it sort of taking a bit of a backward step? To I, the... I don't know what's happening with it now. I won't be co-hosting it anymore because it's a, it's definitely a Colenso thing, but we spoke with just over 80 people on that. And I regard every single person on there as a, you know, an invaluable they've kind of shared invaluable learnings with me that have formed my own thoughts, my own beliefs, my own values, my own kind of outlook on the world. Oh, you've had some fantastic guests. I think Niels Leonard was one of my, that was one of my favorite interviews. I think I may have mentioned something on your uh, LinkedIn profile. He's an absolute star, isn't he? That guy, he's just fascinating. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, Niels was one of the people that inspired me to get into the industry in the first place. So yeah. I had an absolute fanboy moment when. <laughs> no, I know. I realised I would have had. I would have done the he same joined thing. Us, uh, which was great. Yeah, um, I, I saw him speak. He came in. He was. It was. I was part of it. I was a mentor for this. Um, for an art director who entered the Young Bloods uh, competition yeah. uh, for DNAD, and they were one of the few Aussies chosen to um, do the workshop with Niels and the DNAD and so on. <laughs> And I heard him, I was invited to hear him speak and so on, and I was just taken aback by how 
articulate yet no nonsense absolute how real he was but how well he was at just articulating that sincerity and and and, and honesty you know about the industry and about his experience and you know his failures and his successes and oh man he was just he just really really cool guy shout outs to Niels and and, and and for those who haven't heard the um episode go and listen to love this search Niels Leonard um yeah, man, it's a cracker, cracker episode, man. I totally agree. He's also got um, an incredible profile within the industry that I think and a voice that he uses for good um, in terms of education. But there's a lot of people in the industry who have this this voice, this platform, you know, whatever it might be, but have never created a good piece of work in their life. And what I love about Niels is that he's cons- consistently creating some of the world's best work and you know uncommon and what he's creating there with with the team is absolutely phenomenal um what, what i loved about his aspect as well is he it sort of like rose beyond just what they do all the time it's what they do mm. look at me it's very self-serving you know he just seemed to rise above that it's like i'm doing this because i want to build fucking amazing brands and i want to connect with people on a way that goes beyond just consumerism and and commercialism but into culture and he he like you hear people bang on about this all the time but like yeah. he he seemed to do it and say it and walk the talk quite convincingly yeah there's no there's no like pat on the back you know there's no like this is about me it's not it's in service of the world no, that's great you've won a couple and, of Khan lines that's fantastic thank you very much yeah. In terms of what you're currently working on now, I know it's ironclad pans. Like, what's the objective of it? You talked about you don't have, as a individual, long-term plans. And we can go into the lesbianet field, long and the short of it, and so on. And as individuals, we're far less uh, planned. But as a business, I guess you have to be. What is the long-term objective for uh, ironclad pans? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to talk about. It's a good question. It's interesting to talk about long-term objectives with Ironclad because we have a three-generation guarantee on every product. So when you've got a 100-year replacement guarantee, it's definitely something that you want to, you know, carry on doing for a little while. You know, borrowing from Niels again, you know, he he wants to create brands that people wish existed. And whilst that wasn't the driving force behind what we were doing, you know, when I retrofit it, it really works. Looking at the, the cookware category and the number of imports in New Zealand and just... Teflon, which has done a crazy educational job over the last 40, 50 years. Like we've got huge behavioral change work to do in our, in our local market first and foremost. And then as and when we expand into other markets to kind of obliterate the use of Teflon, you know, the fact that we're ingesting chemicals every day and leaching chemicals into the soils when we throw them, like all that kind of shit. It's not, it's not good for us. Um, so yeah, we wanted to create something that was, you know, that was good for good for people, good for the planet, and something that you only had to buy once. Um, which is a business strategy is never solid. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was saying. Like you, you've got like market penetration strategy. You focus on selling current products to existing customers. You go no uh, yeah. market development strategy. Um, you know, expanding sales, selling current products to in new markets, which you're kind of doing a bit of that. And you've got product development strategy, new products. So you're sort of doing a bit of that. But you're not selling them to existing customers per se, but you're selling them to people who understand the product 
but just aren't behaviorally uh, adopting it. Um, and then you've got that whole diversification strategy where you're sort of essentially creating a whole new product, um, yeah. completely new business. So it's kind of interesting because you sort of, you can't, like we started by saying you couldn't be pigeonholed. You've chosen that sort of gnarly um, business problem to grapple yeah. with, and I'm sure that challenges you, and that's why you find it so stimulating. Because yeah. I think what you're doing is it's it's quite you're marketing the product, and it has all these attributes associated with longevity, sustainability, quality. It is almost a premium product in itself because and, – and you adopt and embrace that mantra of buy well, buy once. I, I love everything about it, man. I've just wondered how – what the business – is it growth? Is it awareness? Do you want every single person on earth owning an ironclad pan because of the quality and the, the impact it can have on the environment? Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think like our trajectory at the moment, whereas mum, dad, and immediate friends have got it. And then the early adopters have got it. Mm. And now it's like, shit, how do we scale? Yeah. yeah. By kind of everything that we've learned um, to really raise awareness that we exist and why we exist. And then, you know, affect consideration and ultimately conversion. Doing that purely on human creative capital without any outside investment is interesting. But again, you know, one of the reasons that I believe creativity is the best competitive advantage you can have, the best business advantage you can have. And we truly put that to the test. In terms of like, you know, where's where's the business going? What's the ambition? For sure, we want to get an ironclad into every Kiwi home because once you've got one, you know, you just you just hand it down, right? And there's millions of homes in New Zealand yeah. that could have a could have an ironclad. Just picking up on that, what what is an out of category comparison, would you say? For so for me I would say I've got the bunnykins little bowl that my great aunt gave me when I was yeah. three. And I've yeah. still got it and my daughter eats her cereal out of it. And it's one of those things that it has a significance that goes beyond just the mm. the vessel itself. It's something that means something to you. I'm I'd imagine and I know you guys with your menu vault and you're really tapping into the nostalgic aspect of the brand and the value, the perceived value and the willingness to pay then increases because it's not, it's not just the cookware. It's something beyond that. Yeah. It moves, yeah, it kind of moves beyond just the product. Um, like with things like the recipe vault, as you say, you know, a place where you can upload heirloom recipes from your family that you might have on sticky notes or pieces of paper around the house and then create new ones for generations to come. Like it's just a, you know, a simple thing, but kind of helps to forge that bond between generations, between family members, etc. Um, I think there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of competitors in the category, but nobody that's doing it in New Zealand. Um, you know, we're the only New Zealand made cast iron cookware. We're the only ones that deliver it unseasoned. Um, and they're all hand poured and hand finished. So we knew there's no chemicals or dyes or enamel or anything that shouldn't be in a pan or in your food in the production process. Um, I think to your point about kind of out of category, um, we studied, and I mean studied, um, like Peter Buchanan-Smith's Best Made. Um, Do you know those guys in the US? I'm thinking of someone else. I kind of, I'm thinking of Grove Made. So Best Made are a, they're an axe company in the US. They just, they just sold out to a company for over a billion dollars, but I think he'd been going for 10 or so years. And it was ultimately when we studied it, it was 
a demonstration of brand value. You know, why would you pay $550 for this axe um, when you can buy pretty much the same product in Target for $55, you know, for 10% of the cost? And the difference for us was brand. And so when we studied his model of building this business, you know, he had a shop front in Chinatown next to a whole bunch of restaurants and stuff because he knew he was distinctive, differentiated, whatever you want to call it, and stood out. Um, he'd then build, you know, about 150 products around the axe, all designed to sell the axe. Um, so, you know, whether, you know, whether it was, you know, a crazy expensive box of matches or whether it was, um, a book about plants that you can eat whilst you're foraging in the woods to an axe sharpener, you know, it was all designed to sell the core product. And so I guess we're ultimately taking parts of that model that we like and parts that we, you know, leaving the rest. Um, in that, sure, you've got the pans as the hero products, but then we've got little leather handles that you can put on the pans. We've got yeah, mitts, mitts, we've got aprons about to launch a use and care kit to condition yeah. and look after your pan. And um, so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of adjacent, adjacent products and stuff that we can build around it, as well as go and explore new markets, um, sort of new territories when the time's yeah. right. I can imagine there'd be some sort of connected customer experience as well, like you establish this relationship with your customers and you might be able to tell them that, hey, if you've been using your pan at this frequency, it's probably time you re-seasoned it. Here's how, here's some tips. There'd be a really nice nurture campaign you could build off the back of all of this and you might need some mitts and here's a whole bunch of seasonal mitts that remind you of nanas, you know, and, and the, the, I love those retro mitts. They're fantastic, you know. And again, it plays back to that nostalgia and obviously creating that relationship increases your perceived value and it's not just to your point of pan, it's a lifestyle. It, like I buy the Japanese knives. I'm not a, I've got a shun mm. that was gifted to me and a shun that was gifted to me and, and I just every day I use the globals and they're just they're quite mainstream at the moment but when I got them I intended for them to be pieces that I would maintain and look after for a very long time because, you know, I love martial arts, I love Japanese culture, mm. and, you know, I kind of, it's just an extension of, you know, kind of my interests really and I like working with sharp bloody knives. <laughs> so. Yeah. But I imagine yeah. with the Japanese chef knife as well, like that was quite the initial investment. Yeah, right? it was. Really. I've had them for you, years, years, years. How yeah. much you spent on it. But yeah. it then created this almost emotional bond to an inanimate object, oh, which totally. I still find absolutely totally. mad um, yeah. <laughs> with, with anything that we create. But it, it kind of encourages you to want to look after it. To keep well, it's it. kind of animist in a sense, isn't it? It's like where our, yeah. our ancestors only a few thousand years ago were worshipping rocks. Uh, and some cultures continue to do so today, and that's awesome. Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of quite, when you think about it really deeply, you can kind of go, why not? Why not? Would you rather believe in a sentient primate sitting in a cloud, or do you want to worship the craftsmanship and the either nature created or humans via the resources nature provides created? No, I totally agree. And there's there's no craft in landfill, you know? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love I love the kind of traditional methods and traditional techniques of so how, they, how they make these things, you know, in, in the foundry and, and 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 the knives and stuff. And the, you know, even with the knives and the pans, like the more you use them, the better they get. And that that doesn't exist with many products. No. You know, most most products tend to deteriorate with time. Um, 
all the Teflon, you know, what was it? Yeah. Just over, it's about one and a half million Teflon pans end up in landfill in New Zealand every year. There's only. That's ridiculous, isn't it? You'll hate me for this. And I am going to buy one of your pans, but I'm, <laughs> I've got some Teflon pans that I cannot stand using anymore. My birthday's coming up. And my wife asked what I wanted oh, uh, it for my list. birthday. So I might have to say, uh, I might get a, uh, um, an ironclad pan will be one item. And if we can get copper pots to replace the others, that'd be pretty damn cool. So, and, and you're right, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's that Japanese was just staying with the Japanese knives, um, out of category example for a second, mm. the wabi sabi aspect of things, you know, or old Japanese watches, you know, there's a whole school and a cohort of people who really love the imperfections that knives may get or, you know, or like a leather bag may get, you might get a Filson leather bag and you, got it from the original New York outlet and it's got all these scratches and wear and rubbing and it's polished because of the wear on one side and people love that shit because it's it's got that spirit embedded within it and and I think the pans are the same way right I mean that's it's it's fascinating because eh? you know I read I read far too many trade magazine opinion pieces and stuff and the words that keep popping up are you know culture become culturally obsessed make a dent in culture yada yada or focus on your community your community will tell you everything build a community and those seem to be the two two things but if i'm an insurance company or if i'm a <laughs> i don't know a talk how do i yeah. how do i genuinely build community yeah. like a yeah. cult-like community like you have with the Japanese knives, right? And yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's fascinating with a product like that how you, you know, can create, you know, more than just a transaction with someone. Oh, for um, sure, for sure. But to, 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 to think that they're those customers, you know, beyond things like Japanese knives are fans of yours. I think is is kind of ludicrous. And yeah. <laughs> back to the ego thing, you know, like yeah. Yeah, we've just got to strip it away. <laughs> strip it right back. Yeah, they're not so much fans there. This culture would have emerged regardless. And you've got to truly be embedded in it. You can't be rapacious and take from it. You've got to add to it. Be part of it as well. Like not not necessarily you as a brand, but you as a human behind the brand. Like if you're sitting in Ivory Tower all day, every day, you've got no idea what people are thinking or seeing or experiencing. So true insight. I believe can't come from a computer screen. You've kind of got to be out there. So, you know, the work that I do with prisons, the work that I do with local, you know, poets or creative communities and stuff like that's where the real conversations are happening. Just quickly shifting to the ivory towers. And I think you're alluding to um, the marketing industry and the advertising industry. Do you think we've been a little detached of late? People talk at length. I know Steve Harrison in his book, yeah. Can't Sell, Won't Sell, talks about how detached we've become. We've you know become quite progressive in our leanings, but at the same time become quite um, affluent and sometimes so affluent that we don't understand the working class needs and desires of the people we're meant to be selling to. It's a hard question to answer for two, like for two reasons. Because um, you know Steve's book, like we've forgotten that we need to sell. You know, like <laughs> ultimately we've forgotten that we need to sell, and that's our primary kind of job. Sure, create recommendation, holy grail of marketing, etc. But we need to sell. Um, and then I'm also just finished a mini MBA in marketing with. Mark Whitson. How awesome is that course? It's honestly? such an amazing course, but it's very much 
given me a, a bias in terms of <laughs> what my thinking is is but if i look at the start of that course it's orientation it's yeah, market, market orientation, orientation yeah yeah and thinking from the customer's point of view not my own point now of how view. much of an awakening was that Honestly, like, you know how in, in the ad world you go, fuck research, man. Like, why do we have to do research? Like, how else are you going to understand, dude? Are you going to go out there and fucking interview everyone yourself? Are you going to sit there with a whole bunch of people? I bet you're not. I bet mm. you're not. So all you got is fucking research, man. You know, like, so, you know, the, and how else are we going to orientate ourselves towards an audience if we don't gather the needs, wants, and desires and really understand what it is that's affecting yeah. them, you know? I- so at Colenso, they have this collection of cards called the Love and Trust Cards. And I think it's a set of 12 and they've got all these kind of mantras on, on, on them. And one of my favorite ones was listen and people will tell you everything. And it's, mm. it's so damn true. We're not, lis- like, we're not listening. <laughs> if, we, if we go out and listen to what youth want, you know, what minority groups want, what, you know, what the people actually want rather than what we think they want, I mean, there's two schools of thoughts there, right? Like, you know, you've got the kind of the Ford version of it, which is if I'd listened to the people, I'd have ended up with a faster yeah. horse. Yeah. And instead, he created the Model 4T, which is when things started going downhill from an environmental perspective. But that's another story. But I think, yeah, co-creating, listening, like actually listening to people. I love the movement towards, I know it's a bit kind of dated now and there are various interpretations of the design thinking but empathy coming first from a design thinking philosophy i I Mm. really it really resonates with me and it marries nicely with mark ritson's um you know market orientation and the steps essentially the course is a list of like it's basically sequential you know you this is essentially a marketing strategy and starting with market orientation is crucial understanding your audience and i love the the parallels with design thinking in that you empathize with your audience um, and then trying to define their problem. If you ask a group of people to design a better vase, you'll get in response a whole bunch of kooky, crazy vases or vases. But if you ask people to design a better way of experiencing flowers, just redefining the possibilities and using a user-centered aspect that is steeped in emotion. What you'll get in return is a whole bunch of crazy options. You may get flowers delivered by drones. You might get a flower wall that grows in your living room. I think empathy and empathy and leadership is, is amazing. And if you haven't, I'd recommend Alchemy by, if you haven't read it, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland and his kind of behavioral science practice goes way more into experience design and, and, and that kind of things, which I'm just, fascinated by but just really struggle myself to design those problems because yeah well it's hard to redefine them as well like we do tend to think by default in utilitarian terms as opposed to experiences and and i feel as though maybe that is what is at the heart of the issue with the ad industry in a sense because it's stuff you've got to do stuff you've got to create the ad you've got to create the thing you've got to do the thing that wins the awards you've got to do but no one's going what is it that the people need and how can we offer an experience that exceeds uh, their expectation or what could be getting in the way and muddying that is uh, it gets a bit messy because we're somewhat a b2b industry in advertising yeah realistically we're not b2c you're b2c Mm-hmm. You're, you're literally developing a relationship directly. They're literally ordering it from you directly. There's no one in the middle. But advertising, realistically speaking, is a B2B industry because who do we really answer to? It's our clients. I think that's why I enjoy 
projects like Kupu and Selfie Stick, uh, Selfie Sticks, and some of the BNZ work as well, because it has true tangible kind of functional use. And then came, how do we deliver this to the world? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. There's there's some agencies that are going in that direction where it's like let's let's truly seek to solve the problem first before we land on the solution. And there's there's several that are kind of sticking to their guns and very solution driven. Um, I'm not saying either are better. Um, I just think truly understanding, yeah, the human problem you're looking to solve or the business problem you're looking to solve or cultural problem you're looking to solve, whatever it is, has to come before retrofitting an idea to it. <laughs> um, and don't forget that's only that's only comms, right? That, that's only what, 4% of a marketer's job, 5% of a marketer's job. <laughs> A brand is more than just a logo and its product. I mean, how are you guys living and breathing your brand values internally? You know, you're at the infancy of this brand, even though you've already done some great things. I mean, our values are, you know, for family, sustainability and craft, which are really easy to write in a brand guidelines or to write on a wall somewhere and then completely forget about them. But in terms of culture, like we and the people that we hire have to absolutely, you know, die by the sword with them. Like you have to believe in them. And so, you know, a mum with two kids as the co-founder, as, you know, head of the family, like amazing. Like it comes from a place where we're not just looking to make a buck. Like it actually, it actually means something to us. Sustainability is our obsession and my obsession is yeah. How do I encourage more brands, startups or big corporates to realize that you can be both sustainable and profitable? And if I can't do that through my own business, then, you know, how can I turn around and say that you should do it with yours? So if anything, that's a case study, you know, Ironclad's case study to take to other businesses and say, no, you, you can do it and, and here's how. And then when it comes to, to craft, making things in New Zealand with all locally sourced materials and all things and local labor, et cetera. I mean, it's the reason that no one's done it here before because it's just so expensive. The craftsmanship and the quality does exist if you're willing to pay a little bit more for it and to, and to just believe that it's going to work as well. You know, we started with a model from China during our R&D session, you know, a $10 thing, and you could tell it was a $10 thing. Um, that we were then going to try and put a crazy price tag on. So, yeah, we then investigated doing it locally and, yeah, 5,000 or so pounds later, we're kind of still here. It's really not easy to live those values, but I think if it was easy, then, you know, everyone would be doing it. As organisations grow, sometimes their attention is focused elsewhere and they, they, they take their eyes off the central thing that is going to define them as a brand and give them that competitive advantage. And it's so crucial that you you protect that brand and you ensure that it's affecting all your policies internally. I think that's a long-term, you know, long-term point of view as well. Like, yeah. you know, we could run discounts every week, just damage your brand for the long term. Yeah. And so that short-term mentality of how do we get the quick wins, I see in a, you know, performance marketing-driven world every every yeah. day like mm. because we can measure it we should i mean sure there are some quick wins along the way but building a brand yeah is is the competitive advantage with that's that's how we started it's how we'll continue and don't get me wrong like you know we've still got to be profitable like yeah, we're still, yeah, we're still yeah. going to sell some things we're you still, got to pay people you got to put yeah you know, we're going to pay our taxes yeah you know yeah. there's a there's a lot of big 
purpose-driven companies in the world who pay fuck all in tax every year. Mm. And it winds me up. Just pay your taxes, yeah. yeah but that'll really help people in impoverished areas, uh, provided the governments aren't fucking messing things up and being corrupt and so on. But, you know. And and I guess in terms of making the money, yours is more of a coach behaviour where you're trying to nudge customers. You're not bombarding people with things. But is that some of the stuff you guys talk about in the offices? Like, what's the what's too much, too little? How do we – what's that fine balance between – um, performance marketing versus long-term brand building. When do we go out to market just to say, "Hey, here's some advice," and we're not asking for anything, you know? Um, you know, because a lot of the times marketers tend to. There's always like a something at the end of it. Like, um, why not just establish a relationship with your audience and not ask for a thing? Just tell them, "Hey, this is another great tip," and we're not asking for anything. There's definitely a time and place for CTIs, and you know the buy now kind of mentality. And hundred percent, if you know someone's been to our website, added it to cart, and then not bought, of course I'm going to retarget them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm um, like that. That's just kind of basic fundamentals. What I retarget them with is a very different question. You know, am mm. I giving them a discount code or am I giving them, selling them on more product benefits and kind of mm. storytelling? How would you nudge them towards a sale if you, you don't want to seem to be – like it's just not your brand. You're not hard sell. It's long-term. It's something you buy once. It's considered. It's Yeah, spend less it's time. it's in the language, right? And it's – I think spend less time trying to convince the unconvincible. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, people put it in the cart, by mis- you know, whatever. Every every single dollar that we spend as a small business has to work harder than the last. So yeah. if I'm trying to use it to convert someone that wasn't interested in the first place, like, what's the point? What are some of the fears people have in buying it? Like, what's the inertia that you've got to, or the decision bias that you've got to have to overcome? Is it cost? Is it, is it, they're quite heavy? So cost tends not to be... An objection. Um, I mean, yes, we have ideal customer portraits, but at the end of the day, if you're going to invest in something that lasts for 100 years, you can kind of pretty quickly see the cost cost benefit. The challenges that we have is just purely education. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I go back to the Teflon thing, but they really have dominated almost every market in the world and falsely tell people about what their products can do. So it's our job as the only people doing it here in the market to kind of educate people that you can use it on induction that you you know that's the most frequently asked question is will this work on induction induction yeah, yeah that you know this is why we deliver it unseasoned versus every other pants you know it's, it's essentially just broadcasting our um you know our point of view on the world but then also kind of a bit of education in the market about you know the health benefits of using cast iron the environmental benefits of using cast iron and back to your earlier point about that kind of long-term point of view, um, you know, when you're a small scrappy startup with no no capital and you're just basically going month to month in terms of, in terms of revenue um, and expenses, strategic kind of use of partnerships has been really, really beneficial for us. Like we've had so much love and support and advocacy from New Zealand chefs and brands that we've partnered with. That's and fantastic. Yeah. I think that's been... That's been huge for us. Who are um, some of the partners you, you've partnered with thus far? So, I mean, top Kiwi shifts from Peter Gordon and Michael van der Elzen, Al Brown, through to kind of more influential food bloggers on on Instagram with, you know, Vanya Insel and Manish, just a whole bunch of different people. Wow, and then yeah. on the brand side of things, Silverfern Farms have been incredible my food bag eat my lunch a whole bunch of people in the category i'm mm. now trying to talk to some more people outside of the category you know you can get it on flybys you'll soon be able to get it on air new zealand airpoints we're in about oh, 20, sweet, or, sweet, 20 or 25 different retailers which has been 
which has been great, but it's really understanding who are those people that align with our values. They're going to want to communicate a similar message to what we're communicating. I yeah. think yeah. The, the point we've tried to make from the start in terms of our philosophy around broadcast versus editorial is if I, if I am broadcasting a message to you, all I'm doing is from our perspective, trying to greenwash you into buying something or trying to persuade you or manipulate you into buying something. But if I take a publisher's mentality mm. and a more editorial approach and have other people doing that for us because they believe in the product of their own back, it's far more beneficial for us and far more beneficial for the brand, which is hard to do. You know, most, most people want money to do it that we just don't have, but a lot of people are in it for the good juju. And, um, yeah, it's been it's been awesome. Who are some of the great brands in yeah. um, your cohort of environmentally responsible brands, and what are they doing differently to say your mass consumer product based brand? One of my favorite companies at the moment is Yeti, who wanted to create a cooler. Do you have you come across Yeti? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I listened to someone the other day speaking to I think the as the CMO of Yeti. North America. So I love, like, I love what they're doing in terms of they started with a product that they tested over and over again, and they were so confident in the quality of their product. And they then went out to kind of advocate, but the product was almost in the background. It was all about storytelling through Yeti Presents, through a whole bunch of kind of documentary-like content. Um, They then went and created adjacent projects uh products once they'd got their kind of brand out into the world and a bit of awareness but they started with a really small community of like fishermen and camping and that kind of world in a specific area in the u.s um so it was really kind of localized and they then branched out so they kind of started this little experiment saw that it was working and then branched out rather than taking all of this venture capital money all of this you know let's be five years non-profitable and you know let's then file an ipo like all that crap um they just tested what would work for them and then expanded um i love that i love that like their their approach to content um you know i love because it's a it's a publisher mentality it's not a advertisers mentality and they're doing it to inform and educate and entertain not to just broadcast a discount (laughs) Um, another brand that I like in that regard is Away. They're a direct-to-consumer luggage company in the US. Um, again, there's just studies and studies and studies about these guys, but they started as a magazine and then created a product once they'd built a community around people who enjoy travel. And it was just a different approach to, to, to branding and marketing that I hadn't seen before, but that a lot of companies have tried to replicate, and I know how hard it is to get it right. Um, so yeah, I absolutely love those two companies away and, and Yeti at the moment. Uh, and just unpacking some of the reasons why maybe you, you, you do, and it's very similar to what you guys are doing, you're being invited into a community that exists. Like in the case of Yeti, you know, you said fishermen and hunters and they were testing things and it's like, well, how do you orientate yourself towards their needs as opposed to broadcasting your uh, will upon them and you could just see how you could add value to their experience and their passions yeah it's that whole first 1000 customer mentality right like i need to truly identify with and understand who those first 1000 customers are rather than trying to feed every mouth on the planet or you know give a drink to every mouth on the planet like 
truly understand those first thousand and how to how to win them over and they will tell you everything you need to know to get to 10,000 to get to 100,000 etc it's a very subtle a very nuanced and subtle shift in approach isn't it it really mm. is but they're both amazing brands and I'm quite familiar with both the way and Yeti I think um, you can sit proudly alongside them in ironclad it comes from the same sort of family and philosophy doesn't it of trying to do what's right for the planet and provide uh, amazing products at the same time, you know. Mm. Um, what would you say to someone who was maybe working in the advertising industry or in marketing broadly who wanted to go out and start their own thing? Um, so I've already mentioned kind of mentorship and getting yourself a mentor. Being able to get comfortable with being uncomfortable is hard work but has to be done. If you're truly going to go and make something and put your your soul into it, you know, not just your head and your heart, but everything into it. It's going to be really, really uncomfortable at times, whether it's, you know, the long hours to make it happen, whether it's the mental energy to, you know, to keep focused on it, um, whether it's asking for help with it, you know, whatever it is, truly experiencing how uncomfortable it can be and being comfortable with that and comfortable with the uncertainty and then not knowing and not knowing if it's going to work is huge. It's, it's hard. And when you learn how to do it, tell me how, um, cause I'm still <laughs> getting there myself, but, um, yeah, definitely the best piece of advice I've had that I'd want to share with people. So we've got listeners who are in the industry. You guys don't want to hard sell anyone, but if you could brief creatives out there and it's not an ad per se, it's just a way of communicating the, awesome nature of your product and would you be willing to accept ideas creative responses to that brief is i guess the second question you've put me on the spot here james but 100 percent, i think creativity can come from anywhere and anyone how do you create awareness for a movement that will outlast you how do you create awareness about? for a movement that will outlast you that's a cracker brief and <laughs> i love that you've summarized it into a sentence it's not quite your bite of wisdom but um, hey, if the yeah. listeners have a, 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 a solution for that one, then let us know. And I'd love to see it because I think this is a, an awesome brand and I really want to support it in any way I can. Um, the first way I'll do it is I'll, I'll have to buy one. I'm going to buy some mitts. I think they're so cool. They're retro and they just look awesome. Um, and they remind me of my grandma. So what's your bite of wisdom, Joe Carter? Um, yeah, beyond the getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is lean into the risk. And it sounds so cliche, but... Just take it. Don't overthink it. Don't overanalyze it. Don't intellectualize it. Just take it. Yeah. Because yeah. the biggest risk is not taking it. Lean into the risk. Lean into the risk. I love it, man. All righty. Well, that kind of brings us to the end. I could keep jamming on a whole bunch of things, man. And I'm sorry I sounded like such a fanboy, but it's just, it's just brilliant. And when you identify these cool, not so much startups, but you know these cool brands, I think it's really important that we give those brands and those people behind them the positive energy they need to keep going. You're a legend. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, where can people find out more about Ironclad Pan? Oh, you'll probably see me posting daily rambles on LinkedIn. So just look for Joe Carter. Or you can find the pans at ironcladpan.com. Awesome, mate. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate your time. I'm, I'm, I'm a little disappointed that your podcast is no longer running or you're not going to be associated with the podcast, but uh, hey, that's, that's, that's fine. I'm looking forward to doing um, more interviews with you in the future as well. You can always be on mine, man, and give us some updates. So. I'll have to start a new one. Thanks for inviting us on, James. No Cheers. worries, brother. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. 
All right. Yes. That's cool, man. Sweet. That's that was great. great. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the If you'd like to find out more about me or the B-Side podcast, please visit jamesbside.com. That's one word, jamesbside.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at B-Side Podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback on the show, please email me at hello at jamesbside.com. And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. The B-Side with James Barrow is produced by me, and I really hope it's helped unlock your creative potential. Thanks for listening, and until next episode, cheers.